Hey, Circle Take listeners, thanks for joining me. Today we are talking to writer, director, actor Greg Travis about the first feature film he directed, the 1984-2015 film noir, vampire, comedy, fantasy, horror film, Dark Seduction. So, as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive, and no plot turn is sacred, so you have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So before we get started, today's show is special because you should not only watch this film, but Greg Travis also produced a documentary about the saga of making this film, which is available for free on YouTube. Just Google 30 Years of Dark Seduction. Now, this is important because what we talk about on Circle Take is the filmmaking process, the creative process of how the film was made and how Greg matured as a director. What we do not cover in this show is why it took 30 years to complete. Honestly, it's an amazing story, but Greg did such a good job of explaining it himself in the documentary, and aside from the fact that Greg has told the story in other interviews, it would just take the entire show to go through but trust me if you watch that doc you're going to want to watch dark seduction immediately afterwards so how to watch greg travis's dark seduction as of the recording of this show dark seduction is available on itunes and voodoo of course if you just have to have a dvd you can get one on amazon so only a few ways to see it but still totally doable and it will be worth it greg travis's dark seduction get a hold of it and give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Voila. Straight away, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. This is Greg Travis interview, take one. Mark. Hello. And action. This is The Circle Take, conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film. And over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is writer, director, stand-up comedian, and actor, Greg Travis. Greg is a veteran actor and comedian who has been working in film and television in front of the camera for over 30 years, working with such A-list directors as Zack Schneider, David Lynch, Paul Verhoeven. Greg also has a career in stand-up comedy where, among other things, he's performed all over the world as the character David Slees, the punk magician, clips of which are available on YouTube, and I have to say, it's worth checking out. (laughs) Greg set out to direct his first feature film way back in 1984, but amazingly, after 30 years, the film was only just released this past October in 2016. The film is called Dark Seduction, and as the perfectly extreme genre-matching poster for the film aptly describes... Its hard-boiled versus vampire's story is centered on a classic film noir private eye who's searching for a pair of 1980s new wave punk-style vampire girls who use their sex appeal and charms to do the dark seducing the film's title alludes to. The film was shot on 16mm black-and-white film, and a recent review of the film by the premier horror fanzine Fangoria wrote, 
Dark Seduction really shows how artistically fluid and fully formed the actor-director Greg Travis is. While it's a film that some might undeservedly put in the so-bad-it's-good category, there isn't a single thing bad about this newly finished and wonderfully entertaining noir piece of gold. Greg Travis, welcome to The Circle Take. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so good to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Uh, thank you. First of all, congratulations. Uh, what did you think when you read that review from Fangoria? They're sort of the gold standard of the genre. Yeah, I um, had um, gotten the the word that they were going to do the review, and so it was about three months later when it finally came out, and Ken said, oh, we finally got you know someone to do it. So Was it like yeah, three it months of like nail-biting? What are no, they going to think? No, not really. I'd kind of forgotten about it, actually. Because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're hitting so many different places with the press you yeah. know, promotion of a film. You know, you just you hit them and you you hope for the best and then keep going on, keep going forward. So. And then and then to get a review like that from them must make you just feel really good. Yeah, I was real tickled. That was one of our better reviews. So, for sure. Yeah, I was I was real tickled that they yeah. liked it and uh you know, it's like um it's an odd thing because it is a film noir and a lot of the younger generation are not as familiar with film noir as we were growing up. You know, like when video came out I couldn't get enough film noir to catch well, up on all those movies. Let's quickly play a little clip to give the audience a sense of like what this genre is. Mm. There's a moment in the film that I love where uh, the lead character, this private eye, is uh, working the beat, and he's on the street, and uh, and he goes into Natasha's uh, shop, mm-hmm. her little psychic shop. So the the scene starts with this classic film noir image of our, our you know this low angle looking up at him, and he's on the street, and the Taft building's behind him. It's a classic noir image, mm-hmm. and then we go into this scene with this just classic noir dialogue. Let's listen to this. I was tired of barking up the wrong tree. I was about to pack it in, and I spot a little place called Natasha's. The locals call her the Bad Tooth Fairy. I thought I'd go drill her for some answers. I'm sorry, we're closed. The door was open. We're closed. I need a few things. I said we're closed. It won't take a minute. That's too long. What's the hurry? To get rid of you. What's in the back room? You got a search warrant, pig? What makes you think I'm a cop? I can smell a dick a mile away. Just what are you afraid of? Not you. Yeah, well, you'd better be, lady. You just better be. Because I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm drunk, and I've got a bite on the side of my neck the size of a fucking half dollar. And if you don't tell me what I want to know, I'm going to blow you away. Well, in that case, what do you want to know? And that oh. pause is what really makes it's that, everything. It, that it really long is. pause while she's great. thinking she's blowing about smoke it. at yeah, him blowing casually. Smoke, yeah. Oh, he's got a gun pointed <laughs> in her face. It's yeah. just everything about that scene is just like so perfectly noir. <laughs> yeah. So the way I like to do this is kind of in, in stages of how the film is built. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's first talk about uh, this project as it came to you. Mm-hmm. You were kind of roughly fresh out of film school, right? No, I had. Um, in 78, 79, I was going to film school. I came out here and uh, went okay. to film school at uh, Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. And then at the same time, I had started doing uh, audition night as a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of took off as a comedian 
relatively quickly within like six months, I was doing a national TV show and, you know, before I even had a full act together. And so I, I, I started working, you know, as a middle act in some of these clubs around the country within like a year, you know? So by 1980, I was, I was up and running as a stand-up comedian. So that kind of like kind of sidetracked your sidetracked filmmaking me. career. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, it was a good thing. I was still in, her, in the entertainment business, but I was on the road and I was out there. But while I was doing that, I was always making a short or, you know, experimenting with these, uh, the, the, the little Panasonic cameras came out. And so we started uh, making shorts with those instead of Super 8 or 16 millimeter. So I feel like the, the shorts you were making back then were almost like, you know, what viral videos are now. Yeah. You know, like exactly. you guys were like way ahead of your time to making like really short, funny little wacky yeah. films. Like five to 10 minutes. Yeah. And they were just, you know, self-contained little comedy shorts and parodies of movies, right. different little, uh, you know, ideas that we came up with. And we had, the three-quarter editing came out, so that gave us the ability to kind of cut mm -hmm. with the... Before that, we'd go from machine to machine right. and try to edit that way. Painstaking. Or we would transfer the footage to three-quarter and edit on a three-quarter system. Right. And then it would be on three-quarter. We did that a few times. So, so you're out on the road, you're doing yeah. comedy, you're making these wacky short films with your friends. Right, and, and then, that went on for about three years. And then in about 83, I made one, and that's where I met my partner, Steve Bouchard. Um, I had been making them with David Daniel, who's my buddy from Texas, and he lived in New York, and his wife was the girl who played Victoria, uh, played Vera. And so um, we did one called Home Life, which was about this wimpy guy whose wife was this big, large woman who was having an affair with his best friend. And, uh, you know, there was just this real kind of John Waters-style, strange little, uh, you know, story. And so that's where I met Steve Bouchard. And so then later on, he had this idea of a vampire film that he wanted to do. And now, did Steve come to you with the idea of, I want to do a noir film, or I want to do a vampire film, or I want to do a vampire noir film? He wanted to do a vampire film in black and white. And so then I came up with the idea, well, we need a detective and and that would give it a film noir feel. And so, you know, we bounced around. He had like a 20-page script, which was basically the vampires going from one victim to another, you know. And so then so I So it was a collaborative effort yeah, coming up I, with the what makes the most sense for what we're right. trying to do And then here. so we added all of these scenes with the detective. And that's, that's why it was so difficult to cut it together because we sort of added it as we went along. And I, and I just, I had these actor friends, comedian friends, and I go, oh, he'd be great as this character and he'd be great as this one. And yeah, let's spend a whole day shooting this scene. And Do you remember how long you spent working on the script before you were shooting? Not very long. Not very long. Do you think not long I enough? would say within a month we got started up, uh, into production. That's fast. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, from that 20-page script that he had originally, and then I just kept adding scenes to it and uh, typing it up and then rewriting what he had. And yeah, it, 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 it took off relatively quickly. And I don't really remember why other than we just really... I think there was some equipment and there was some sound stage that we were getting because it was the 1984 Olympics. And so because a lot of people were going out of town during that period where the Olympics were in town, we got some goods and services for free 
So, like so, little, so the special circumstance of your shoot was we got to jump on this right now right. while we can get this stuff like, cheaper Like we got free. the equipment and we right. got a studio and we got this and we got that. So we better put it together now, you know. Okay. Yeah. And then, so there wasn't really an opportunity to sit with the script and do some rewrites and rehashes. You guys kind of jotted it down and, and, yeah. and jumped into production. <clears throat> yeah. But I knew it needed that sort of film noir clip dialogue. And so, mm-hmm. and I wanted it to be funny. And so that's what I was going for the whole time. And that's your background. So yeah. You and that's my background. So I, I had a pretty good idea what I wanted there, you know? And, and uh, was, w- was there a particular reason that Steve tapped you to direct this film? He probably wanted to direct it, but he felt like he needed somebody with a little bit more comedic chops like me, maybe. You know, we battled quite a bit because it was a battle for power. During production? During production. And and, and he was more, he was coming from more of a uh, a seasoned background where he had been working at a commercial house for a little while. As a cinematographer? I don't know. As an editor and and, and maybe a producer, segment producer and okay. stuff like that. And he, so, w- he was the DP on this, Yeah, right? and he was the DP. And he had a little experience as a DP through other films that he had done. And, um, and it was good. It was good. But we just, um, you know, I had the acting experience coming from it as an actor, and I could direct actors, and I could... Uh, and also, I was more of a writer than Steve was, so I helped shape the script and get it into... Uh, into the shape that it finally was. And then we shot for about two, two, maybe two and a half weeks, the first part of it. And then we came back about six months later and shot a few more scenes. Let's go through the nuts and bolts of that, because that's one thing I want to cover in this, because this mm-hmm. these conversations, in my mind, are, are for filmmakers. Okay. Um, and so I, I really want to kind of parse those details. Sure, um, sure. Because every film is different. The circumstances always change. Um, so let's just quickly go through the kind of nuts and bolts of this production. Mm-hmm. Um, how many days was the the principal of photography? I would say no more than probably 13, 14 days. Okay. Yeah. And then do you remember if you were, I know this is funny because most people are like, they remember because it was, you know, a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but this, this was, was a 30 long years time ago. ago. And so I don't really remember. Yeah. I'm just guessing. Do you remember? Did you do Because I've or, seen the paperwork. We did right. have an extensive paperwork. So I kind of, it was about 12 to 13 days. Did originally. you do like five day weeks, six day weeks? Or just, you just blow right through it? Um... It took us about three weeks to get those 12 days in, 12 or 13 days okay, in. Okay, so it sounds like two days off, gave everybody yeah. a little breather. Yeah. Was there any moment where you considered shooting on video? This was like 1984, video was pretty new. No, because we didn't understand that we could do that. A video was a video and a film was a film. So film had to be shot on film, film no questions asked. A feature asked. film had to be shot on film, no right. questions asked. Amazing. There was just no option and, you know, actually people probably at that time had shot a feature, but mostly documentaries. Yeah. You know. and, and the video quality at that time was essentially VHS, yeah. which is garbage. Yeah. And, but you could get away with a TV documentary on a good three-quarter Sure, but camera, not a movie. But not a movie, right. no. And then uh, how big was your crew? On bigger days, we had extra camera people and extra help, but uh, basically six-person crew. Really small. Sound, two people on camera, one paper on lighting, um, myself, Steve, and a makeup artist and an art director 
So six or seven, maybe. And was there like a traditional lighting kit or was it sort of like a kind of an ad hoc situation? Um, we had some lights and we got some extra lights from a, an associate of his. So kind of pieced it together. Yeah. Kind of yeah. pieced it together. Yeah. Depending Did, on what we needed. You know? Was this, uh, and this is a long time ago, the contracts have all changed since then, but mm-hmm. was this done as a SAG film? No. No, this was in, it was a non union, and you film. didn't really have to because we had mixed. We then. had we had. Uh, I was barely in SAG by then. I, I had done a few little things. Mm-hmm. I think I was SAG then, but uh, a lot of the actors were not. So it was, uh, and our leads weren't. So right. we, you know, we so could justify. So we yeah. didn't really need to. Yeah, um, I assume you didn't have permits. Oh no, <laughs> no! I not. actually got a uh, police officer to stop traffic on Hollywood Boulevard. So we could do that scene where Jones is out on the street. In front of the Taft building. In front building. of the Taft building, right so he's, on the street. So you're not shooting on the sidewalk, no, shooting up to the Taft. We're you're shooting out in the, in the middle, middle of, the of this Hollywood Boulevard on that shot. Yeah. Yeah. Gone are the days, my friend. You can't, <laughs> you can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I did it in the documentary. I, you know, We walked all the way down Hollywood Boulevard without any trouble. So uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. And then you said uh, about six months later, after sort of a, a rough assemble of the film, you went back and did uh, about how many days of pickups? About two weekends, two weekends, about two, four days. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. So then the big behemoth on this film is really Mm post-production. Mm-hmm. So. Well, because we we run out of, we just did, we, we threw together, you know, the, the actual production and, um, and we deferred a lot of the payments. Uh, We did pay the crew a little bit here and there. We, we, we spent a lot of our money on obviously the, uh, the lab work. You know, mm-hmm. just developing chem, the negative, developing the negative, getting the work print, and then once we were into the post production, we had all the work print and we started organizing it. And instead of hiring a real editor, we tried to do it ourselves. Uh, we did have a uh, what are those upright moviola things? Yeah, yeah the green and ones. Then we had a flatbed. Yeah, uh, like with steam back. Steam. Mm, later, later on, we had a steam bag, but we just had the roller things, the uh, the little oh, the, the, the by hand ones. Yeah, by oh, hand geez, ones. Yeah. So we're organizing the film with that and a movie old, right. you know. So th- there's a there's a really long story about mm-hmm. why it took thirty years, yeah. to to finish this film. It seems like more than anything, mm-hmm. your film was caught in the cracks of the changing technology from the old school analog to the new world digital. Right later, it was in the nineties. It started to get into that. It's well, I mean, obviously, but up until sort of like, see, like I had to go back out on the road, and Steve was sort of in charge after we shot the film of the post production because he wanted to be, and he like you know was trying to do the music, and he was trying to do the edit, and he was trying to do the sound effects. He was like adamant about finishing it himself. And there was a, there was a certain point where that just kind of. Fell apart. Yeah, we lost our office at Hollywood Boulevard. He moved everything into the uh, second room at his Studio City apartment, and we were on our way. He was actually getting by '86. We had a pretty good cut. But most of the time during this, you're you're on the road. You're yeah, working. I'm on you're the doing road, comedy. I'm working, you're I'm acting. coming back in, and I would put a little money into it, and you know, and we would like you know get whatever we needed to get. And keep feeding the keep beast. Feeding essentially. the beast exactly. <laughs> Finally, the cut that he came up with, we showed to a few people along with the music that he had done and whatever effects we had, uh, sound effects or whatever visual effects we had done. And it just was laying there. It wasn't working. It was too long. It was too chaotic. And, 
you know how when you don't have all of your sound work in there and it just, you've got the dialogue is kind of dry. Feels naked. It, the timing of it wasn't right and it just feels clunky and, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't very exciting. And well, so, it's also hard to sell that to a test audience when you're mm-hmm. trying to bring your film to like, even if it's family and friends. Right. And you're just like, hey, great group people. And we had done another screening like that of family and friends at Photochem on a much earlier cut. And that motivated us to really to write the extra scenes and go back and shoot that six months later, you know. So we did get a cut within three months and showed it at Photochem, but that's what told us, oh, we got a lot more work to do. We need to fix this and this and this. And so after a couple of years, you know, he just kind of ran out of steam on it and I ran out of steam on it and we just we weren't able to find it. And so it just kind of laid there. It's kind of laid there. Yeah. And and then you did run into like a bunch of technical snafus along the way with technology changing. And, and Yeah. And then in the you know, 90s, the, yeah, that's the, where the sound sort of and then came in. The, and the we, whole craft of negative cutting sort of went away. So right. there wasn't anyone to do that. Right. Um, but there, there's, I'm thinking about as, as a filmmaker, there's this moment over these 30 years, mm-hmm. for a few years at least, I'm thinking, where you just had decided... It was done. It was never going to happen. You let it go. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, after I got all the sound work done and I was really feeling great about that because I'm a big believer in sound, you know, I, I really well, put it's a obvi- lot of work into I'll tell the you, sound it's, job. It's obvious because this film sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I listened you. to this film on headphones in the middle of the night <laughs> um, and it is crisp and clean. It's, it's almost hard to, actually, let me ask you that. How much of this film is ADR? Um, not too much. Because it is fantastically preserved. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much cleanup work they did in post-production. Well, Once we, they got uh, it digitized, yeah. but it sounds super clean. Yeah. Kudos to your sound guys on a super micro low budget movie. Yeah. It sounds My fantastic. guy, uh, Robert Ryder, um, you know, cleaned everything up. And we had, we had a mix. I mean, we had started to mix at... Uh, cube post back in the 90s when you know the very first pro tools was right. being used to to uh you know transfer everything over to it so we had started the mix then and then they went out of business and then that's when i just really sort of like hung it up for a while because i i just couldn't uh you know i'd spent so much money on that that i just couldn't keep dropping you know a lot of money into it do you feel like having that that moment in your life where you'd accepted the idea of this film never being finished. Do you feel like coming back to it after that gave you a fresh look at it? Mm-hmm. Oh, that, absolutely. That helped you to yeah. make it better? Oh, big time, big time. Yeah, because, uh, you know, when you're away from something, you just get a complete... And, and you continue to grow as an artist and grow as a filmmaker. When you come back to it, you just go, oh, I see this problem and that problem. And you just you know, you want to fix all these things. And so after I did midlife, I've got, you know, that was your most recent, feature. that was most recent. And in 2012, we did that and then finished it and got it out there in 2013. And then I, I said, you know, I've got another old film laying around. I wonder, you know, if I can finish that one now, you know, and then I'll have at least three features well, to kind of sort of you've got that sort of post production mojo right, happening. Yeah, exactly. And you're in the mood. You're, you're like, in hey. the mojo. Yeah, you're in the mood to right. to do take that. it on again. Exactly, exactly. And so that's what got me interested in it. And then finding it, finally finding it, and putting it all together, and and then finishing it. Oh, it was such an ordeal. I mean, it was there, it wouldn't a, um, sync up. It wouldn't. The I'll sound, recommend. Yeah. Uh, 
for anyone who's interested in, in the details of of the calamity that that mm-hmm. caused this film to be languishing for so long, um, there's a documentary on YouTube uh, that you can check out, and, and it's a it's a pretty extensive look at at what went down with this film. Uh, what's the name of the documentary? It's called Thirty Years of Dark Seduction. Uh, just look it up on YouTube. It's it's well worth a watch. It's uh it's also really well crafted. It tells the story really well. It's re- super enjoyable to to watch. Um, and uh, you just want to give this guy a hug when you're done watching it because he he this uh, Greg is the job of filmmaking. Every, every time he tries to pick up the film again, the filmmaking gods just slam him down to the ground again. Let's let's talk about some mistakes. Uh, so much of filmmaking is uh, correcting the mistakes that happen along the way. It's you know the, it's never about uh, how well you did when things were going great. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. how well you did when you recovered from every possible thing that could go wrong along the way. Yeah. As we've clearly seen, uh, IMDb will work hard uh, to, to find every nuanced problem uh, with your film. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that sticks out to you that um, just kind of gets you? And you're like, oh, that one. Well, there's a few. You know, I'm of the belief that, you know, these some of these little things are fun to kind of like leave in there. And in kind of like, uh, you know, like there's a scene where if you, in the bar where Dick Jones is in the bar and, you know, he's doing his thinking out loud thing and the narration is over it and everything and a waitress comes up. But we can actually see the French guy at the beginning of the film with the two vampire women in the back of the bar setting at a table in who's the background. Su- who's just, supposed just to set to be, up, he got killed. Yeah, in the he got scene. killed a long time right. ago. But when we shot the film, we did an intro scene of them at that same bar meeting him. And that got shifted around and changed around. So it no longer made it into the movie. I put a little bit of it in the documentary. Uh, so a little so, bit of so the meeting that, scene. So <laughs> so but but because the detective, I, I thought it'd be cool to have him you know, looking for them, and there they are in the bar behind him. Right. You know, comedically, it was a funny idea. Right. But it didn't quite play because we didn't know who that was back there. Right. You know? Was there anything that you, you just uh, found yourself in post-production just not being able to fix that just... I got really lucky with uh, not too much. We cropped it a little differently, so the few dips that microphones had done before... Um, didn't really matter. What they, what they aspect were, ratio did you originally want to shoot It was 16 by in? 9 in the, the cropping of this version, but the original thing was shot in as more of a squared version. Oh, like, a like, a, like, a, like a traditional full frame. Right, traditional right. full frame. But I, I wanted it to look more modern, so right. I cropped it a little differently, yeah. At what, what what point in the process did you decide to re-crop the... the on the negative transfer. Okay. Yeah, when I transferred point. the negative, yeah, I did the cropping a little differently. And did you do any up and down shifting? For some shifting reason, there was a of... little... I did... There was a little headroom on a couple of scenes that always bothered me, and so I wanted to try to fix that problem, yeah. So that... The, so just that cropping that... helped that a lot. Yeah. So, so sort of the, the modern taste of a 16 by 9 frame sort mm-hmm. of gave you a new opportunity to reframe the movie. Right, right. And it made it a little more modern than it was because yeah. it was a very squared frame before. I bet, yeah. yeah so, That's interesting. Yeah. So that brings us to the, the final portion of the show, uh, which is the circle take. Oh, okay. um, and this is the part of the show where we try and gain the knowledge of the experience mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of uh, and this is a really particular uh situation for you um and we touched on this a little bit uh, before we started the show mm-hmm. is that 
although this was the first feature film that you shot as a director, right. this isn't the first feature film you finished as a director. You actually uh, started and finished two other feature films in between shooting and finishing this movie. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. So you... you 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 were a different filmmaker approaching the final edit of this movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Much more seasoned editor and uh, so much more knowledge uh, that I'd gathered along the way as far as uh, sound and music and picture. I was a big fan of uh, Russ Meyer's uh, editing style and Orson Welles, and these guys go pretty fast. You know, they're like, and I think Martin Scorsese's a big fan of... Uh, of Wells's editing, kind of fast editing style as well, you know, and I think it kind of like keeps the movie modern and keeps it viewable for me for years to come. If the film kind of has a nice clip pace to it, you know, yeah, it's and that was what I was always trying to get in in the editing but until i got it on digital i couldn't really get it the way i wanted to cutting on film there's something very timid and scary and you know if you make a mistake going back and fixing that mistake is a major ordeal did do you feel like you were more willing to let mistakes go back when you were cutting on film as opposed to once it's digital and it's so easy to hit well, you're afraid Apple to make... Z and just undo yeah. that and try yeah. it again. Totally. It's it's user-friendly. I mean, you can do anything you want on digital, but without any fear at all. But when you're cutting on your work print, if you cut it too tight, then you've got to go back and not only readjust that and put those frames back, but readjust the sound that you've just cut to match the picture. And it's, there's another hour of work. You know, it's just so time consuming. I mean, I almost wonder if it was better for the film to have waited. Oh, absolutely. Years to finish. Oh, absolutely. I had got as close as I could possibly get in the early 90s. And the problem with the early 90s uh, version would have been the music track would have been I had two other soundtracks done, you know, over the years for the film. And, uh, uh, and, when, and then when this final one, I mean, the, score scores. Yeah. There's two other completely finished scores. Two other for this complete film that scores. We've never heard. Steve did the first one, and another guy named Aaron did the second one that, wow. that never made the cut. Wow. You know, because I by the time you know this version rolled around, I go, okay, I need a whole new soundtrack because it just yeah. this the other stuff was too synthesizer. It's too, mm -hmm. It was too dated. You know? Well, it's funny because the soundtrack that you have now has that uh, in the documentary, uh, your composer actually mentions uh, Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. um, and it does have that sort of classically 70s, synthy, growly texture to it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it retroactively works perfectly for these sort of new wave punk rock vampires. <laughs> it's like, it's perfect for them. Well, that was the thing. It was a very 80s thing because when Blade Runner came out in the 80s, that was the movie we all were worshiping. Sure, and it time. was the modern noir. Yeah, it, it was, was the perfect. modern noir. Yeah. So we were. I, I'd use that temp score as a you know as a temp score. I'm mean, imagining you're sitting down with an aspiring filmmaker. So mm -hmm. here's someone who's maybe made a couple of short films. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've gone to film school. Maybe they haven't. But they're beginning to think about it. Might be time for me to make my first feature film. Right. What kind of advice do you have for someone like well, that? Well, there's two things as a filmmaker. I mean, and Wells talks about this too, not as much as he should have, but it, you are a bit of a hustler. If you don't have the money to throw into it and to do it the proper way, there's always a way. 
and you have to search around and be a little bit of a salesman and be a little bit of a charmer and find a way to get whatever it is you need done, done. And there's always things that are negotiable. There's always people that are willing to work with you if you, you know, really push it, you know, just the money throwing at it is not always the best way because sometimes you overpay for something that might not cost you much, but if you've got a lot of a big fat checkbook, you'll write checks for things you don't need to write checks for, you know? It, se- it seems like you you maybe did a little bit of that early. In, oh, yeah. In post- like, you you yeah. got done with the movie, you sort of throw some money at post-production, go back on the road, say, you guys work, and I'll be yeah. back later. And then <laughs> exactly. it just sort of fumbled yeah. along for a while. And then also, the more you pay people, the less work they want to do for you, you know? For some reason, the less you pay them, the more work you get done. I don't know why that <laughs> is, but in the independent film world, it, it really is the the case. And, um, I would just say, don't give up because the money's not there. You know, there's different ways now to raise a little bit of money. I did raise about 2,500 to do the negative transfer. Uh, and I was able to raise that on uh, one of the sites, um, not Kickstarter, but like Indiegogo, Indiegogo, exactly. Indiegogo. And you know, it wasn't quite 25. It was like close to it, but it was enough to get the job done. And so that was great. And that really, gave me the uh, inspiration to go ahead and, you know, go all the way with it and finish it up. And um, and, and developing relationships with my different post-production people, different editors and different sound people and, and music. You know, I think that's important. As you go along, you want to try to develop a, uh, a group of people that will work with you on little side projects. You know, you pay them when you can with, uh, you know, bigger projects. And then if something comes up, you know, a little short, they'll sometimes help you out, you know, on smaller projects when it's not taking too much time or money. Is, it, is there something you did on this first time out um, specifically that the next time you made a film, you're like, not doing that again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to be real careful with your casting and also casting of your crew. And a lot of the people that um, were working on the crew, I didn't know at all you know, that we're supposed to be working underneath me as a, you know, I'm the director on this thing, but my partner had hired, you know, or brought in several people, eh, some good, some not so good, you know, so that's a big thing you've got to watch out for is you want every person to be really good. You want to be able to get along with everybody and not have anybody do an ego trip on you like, you know, sometimes you run into that kind of thing and it can really just slow down the creativity and the production and and do you think that applies to department heads or do you think that goes all the way down to like the pas and everybody on set? um i think it goes all the way down to the pas you know i think i would say also you just keep learning as much as you can about you know films and studying classic films and like watching a director's work from a to z and looking at what they did and trying to figure it out and then reading about that director the same time like I would go through every director and watch all their films from the beginning to the end and then I would read a biography about them at the same time so I felt like I was you know getting the essence of sort of who they were and and then learning about and then studying their work at the same time never stop learning never stop learning Greg Travis thank you so much for being on the circle take before I let you go if someone wants to go check out Dark Seduction, where can they find it? They can find it on iTunes, Amazon, Hulu, 
Oh man, it's on a lot. It's a, it's on about twelve platforms now. Well, that's great. There's it sounds a, like it's a, super easy. The to Midnight find. Releasing is the uh, distribution company, and there's a page on Midnight Releasing website that has all of the uh, locations where it is. But uh, just punch it into Google, and a lot of them will come up. Great, yeah. fantastic. Well, yeah. I really recommend the film. It's uh, it's just a, a, an absolute blast. Thank you so uh, much, Dark so Seduction. Much. Check it out. We will. <laughs> that's our show for today. Uh, the Circle Take is produced by Apple's Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can sc- subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's many more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where we'll share photos from our conversations, updates, and previews of upcoming shows. All of this and more at our website at thecircletake.com. I'm Jason Smith, and as always, you can circle that one.